you're listening to the film file yes the film show for film geeks by film geeks please refrain from smoking in this theater hello and welcome to the film file yes i'm lee ford and i'm andy beacon and we are as ever pleased Tired. to bring you well andy's tired but i'm pleased to bring you something i'm very proud of to quote a steve martin gag yes it's this week's show have you been my friend i've got you up early i know that yeah lee's off on holiday he's he's pulled a surprise holiday so he sent me a message this morning saying any chance we can do it early i'm accidentally going on holiday and if you listen to last week's show you'll know where that one comes from <laughs> good show by the way last I week I, enjoyed I it i'm still half asleep to be honest with you <laughs> Well, you, you um, perhaps you, you're in a state of hypnosis. <laughs> oh, well, I was after watching one of the films this week, which uh, I'll get round to in the review. That's certainly and a speaking of reviews, I'm not going to mention him by name, but he knows who he is. After watching one of my films this week, I commented to someone of all the things that I loved about it and why it's a good film and the things that didn't work and, you know, what didn't, like, et cetera. And then two days later, that person posted their review on Letterboxd with the same star rating that I said and pretty much word for word what I'd said to them. And it's like, guys, come on, if you're going to do this, you know, be, at least change the wording. <laughs> Does that make you an influencer? Well, when I come to review it later in the show, anyone who's seen this person's Letterboxd profile is going to think that I've ripped off their review. So I just need to set the record clear here that <laughs> I genuinely said all the things that I'm going to say in my review. I won't spoil the surprise of to which one of the three films that I'm looking at today I, I enjoyed. Well, I know it's not hypnotic. <laughs> How do you know? I, I, might be, I, I know. I might be double playing you with some weird um, head trip. Anyway, yeah. Uh, but yeah, aside from that, my week um, obviously started quite nice with the Leopard and Crew gig. Enjoy it? Oh, Def Leopard are just amazing. Man, Joe and the gang are just such star power. And just know, they, they just et the audience up completely. Um, as for Martin Crew, uh, you know what? When your voice has gone that bad, maybe just back away. Maybe really just move away from the industry. They ha they had moments where it was like, okay, that's a bit of fun, but it just felt they just feel a bit too dated. And it's when when you get to Tommy Lee coming out and like walking the gangplank area and like, all right, where's all the beers? Didn't I want to do beers in this country? And then starts asking for women to flash for him. And then starts threatening to whip out his penis. And he's like, oh, come on. We're, we're better than this these days. Come on. But isn't that what rock and roll's about? Well, they're still living in the 80s rock and roll. And they've never matured with it. Whereas I think Def Leppard have kind of grown and matured right. since that era. That they've gone from being like, you know, the, the almost juvenile rock edgy to like oh no you're anthemic and you know your stadium fillers and whereas motley crew just kind of well they split for quite a few years and then they only yeah. came back as people said oh remember motley crew oh we're here we're here his voice is terrible he he can't carry any of the notes anymore and that's the biggest okay. drop down and I, I just I, didn't get it with crew I, I just felt it was like okay at least i've got at least i get to see def leopard do the closing thing and boy they closed it beautifully Obviously, being their hometown as well, obviously gave it that little extra extra element to it. I, I didn't go on the Monday night. I passed on my passes to uh, uh, my good lady and the child. They had a great time. As you know, I saw them at the Leadmill gig on the Friday. Uh, my former bosses had a chance for a catch-up, which was nice. Brief, albeit, but but nice. 
so yeah i've heard good things about it and uh uh it's good to see because we're living at the end of this particular era of, of big stadium bands yeah there there aren't many left and and when it's all over folks it's all over because no one's coming in to fill those spaces yes there are some good bands out there don't don't get me wrong i'm not dissing any any bands at all but that style of huge stadium rock uh is is about to be history which is which is very very sad there's just nothing coming through anymore there are bands that sell out stadiums but to have that kind of longevity you know 40 odd years is an awful long time and uh that's why when people say rock's getting old it's because people are getting older uh <laughs> people still want to see them because eventually it's it's over the party's over close the door on the way out uh, but don't turn down the music yeah yeah that was a good highlight from the week anyway uh the rest good. of it has been same old same old yeah me films, too watching tv shows and working me too no development on the project but i'll keep everyone posted as soon as i know and also thanks to the people out there who watched the um episode one revisited on youtube that are posted been getting some fun feedback from that one oh with good people saying that they, they, they loved the idea of me going back and listening to things for the first time and they, they they enjoyed how i was how i was mocking how we do the show <laughs> i have yet to catch up with that but i i promise i will do um life gets a little bit simpler in the next couple of weeks so yeah uh yes i shall give that a blast let's talk about our socials because last week we set an impromptu socials challenge <laughs> which was double features we were talking about and it just cropped up in conversation because that's how we roll here at the podcast we talked about the fact that in the old days they used to have these double features now sometimes you get a couple of bond films together and then sometimes you get something absolutely ridiculous um and i mentioned seeing kes and the magnificent seven as a double bill which i'll never forget because it's so wrong as a double bill i mean who figured that one out so uh we asked you what your choice of double bill was and andy did we get any responses we got a, a scattering of responses across the socials cineo on mastodon starstruck doubled up with the pirate movie okay <laughs> they clearly went for the option of uh okay these are going to be real cheesy uh nonsense films and yeah, i'm for it i mean i, I just like i'm booking tickets now over on facebook lee leary he wants to go for a zombie double bill and he wants to double bill dawn of the dead with dawn of the dead okay yeah that makes perfect sense likes to obviously do the comparisons between the two different things uh mumsy it's a wonderful life paired with pretty pretty woman just because she loves those two and she's also said that um she'd like them to have pathé news a cartoon and then the national anthem at the end uh, just to <laughs> really why get not? the feel of old cinema i've just reminded just remembered actually a, a double bill that i saw and i was i was really small and this is going by the a double bill of a sinbad movie the one that starred patrick wayne eye of the tiger i think it was uh, anyway it was uh simbad and do you remember the pilot episode of the spider-man tv show yes that starred nicholas hammond yes. it was those two movies together as a double bill <laughs> nice that's that's like a dream childhood memory that i probably don't <laughs> want to remember that one it's probably not going to relive up to it but you know I, I i remember seeing both of them at the cinema i don't think i saw them as a double bill but i remember seeing them both at the cinema over on Twitter, Galactus teeth paired up with up. <laughs> okay, yes. Which, which I think is brilliant. Uh, Slightly if you've disturbing. Never, if, if you've never seen teeth, seriously, prepare for something. I couldn't watch special. it, Andy. 
<laughs> uh, last film scene. Now I love this one. The Chris Rock film, Good Hair, paired up with the horror, Bad Hair. <laughs> Very good. We've got some of the smartest uh, listeners in the podcast. Uh, Stevie business. Dan, 1969, The Car, paired up with Christine. Ooh, yeah, perfect. Bill. And he also said that he's he's got finally got around to watching Sunshine because he listened to the podcast. Oh, great. Thank you. It's working. People are listening to what we're saying and thinking, I've missed that one. Let's get that checked out. Uh, Carbuncle. More just because I have a lot more friends than, I, than I'd like who haven't seen them. Star Trek First Contact and Insurrection as a double bill. Mm. I, I don't have much love for Insurrection. Uh, First Contact was fabulous. Caleb Space, King of Comedy paired with Joker. I can see why. I think yeah, that's it. Yeah. it. They are so thematically Organically similar. Organically related. Yeah. There's DNA in those. Uh, BNF Productions, This Is Spinal Tap, and Tenacious D in the Pickle Des- Pick of Destiny. <laughs> Good double bill of a musical comedy i'd probably swap out tenacious d with that double bill and put pop star never stop never stopping i've never seen that i still have to get around to seeing it you really do you really do i also had responses from andy kennedy who said marley and me with cujo yeah that's when <laughs> when pets go wrong you could call that one <laughs> also he suggested memento and finding dory i can see that i can see the thematic similarities <laughs> there I, I love it dave said dread and the raid yeah yeah totally understandable they're very similar in theme they're just different approaches stephen young there's just so many to choose from he loved when he saw recently alien and aliens back to back at light sheffield but he'd like to see things like batman and batman returns terminator and terminator 2 judgment day and kill bill volume one and two as a double bill why is that not happening it was always on the cards wasn't it supposed to happen yeah and then oh there's going to be the the whole bloody thing wasn't there at one point and then nothing ever happened from it. But it's, yeah, it's true. Whenever the, you get any reissues of them at cinemas, it's very, I've never seen it reissued as the double bill, which it seems like the most logical one. I want to put forward, and I thought long and hard about this one. You know, after I jokingly said last week, Salo, Last Days of Sodom and the Rescuers, I thought about <laughs> what, what other twisted combinations I can do. Now, the first one, first one is for thematic reasons, Matrix and Dark City. Yeah, that works. And the second one, is to really mess with people. I want people to have a film that uplifts them and makes them realize that the world can be a fantastic, enhancing place and then bring them back down with a smash. I want to give them It's a Wonderful Life followed by Dancer in the Dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would do it. That would do it. I, I still, for me, it, it's teeth and and oh. <laughs> it's a yes. beautiful combination that that's, that's it's emblazoned into my thought patterns so what kind of a challenge do we have for you this week it's all about making friends who would be if you could pick any character from any movie who would you like to buddy up with who which character after you've seen that film do you think yeah we should be friends we should be besties which character would you like as your pal so for instance captain jack sparrow and me going drinking together. I could see that. <laughs> I think you'd get destroyed. <laughs> I would, but yeah, maybe a night to a night to remember forever. So which on-screen person or thing do you want to buddy up with? Who do you want as your cinema idol bestie? Answers to us across all of the socials. Looking forward to reading them out next week. Andy, how can they do that? Uh, over on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, just search for Film File UK. There we are. You can reply through there. 
or you can email us in the answer if you want podcast at filmfile.uk or if you're listening on spotify the question will be popped on there and you can reply via spotify excellent and now it's time to tell you what we've got on this week's show coming up on the show this week we have reviews of hypnotic that landed at cinemas this week little mermaid that splashed into cinemas this week and Lao Lao Crocodile, which has been out at cinemas quite a while ago, but it's landed on streaming this week and I finally got round to watching it. For our deep dive, we're going double bill again. We're going to be talking about Michael Caine's Alfie and we're going to be talking about Jude Law's Alfie. We've got the box office, we've got the news. So let's hear the box office and the news. So last week's box office, we saw go head to head, Fast X and Guardians 3. But, as you said, splashing out this week was Little Mermaid. Has she taken the prime position? So this weekend in the US, The Little Mermaid has swum straight into the top spot with 95.5 million taken. Fast X drops into second place, dropping approximately 67% to only take 23 million on this weekend. Guardians of the Galaxy holding in into third place with 20 million taken this weekend. Super Mario Brothers movie still in the top five, 6.3 million added onto its total. And The Machine opens in fifth place with 4.9 million. Here in the UK, The Little Mermaid opens with 4.9 million for a strong start to the bank holiday weekend. Fast X again drops 62% in the UK to take another 2.2 million. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in third place, 1.59 million added onto its total. Super Mario Brothers movie, again in fourth place, another 289,000 added to its total there. And new entry Hypnotic hits fifth place with 187,000. Worldwide to date, Little Mermaid has opened its weekend worldwide, 185 million taken in the first three days. A very strong start for the Disney live action adaptation. Fast X is up to 512 million worldwide, with a strong over 60% drop-off in each location. It's uncertain how much more mileage they can get out of this film. And Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is now past 723 million on the worldwide box office. At the rate it's going, it should easily get to around 800 million before it finally settles. You'll hear Andy's review of Little Mermaid in a short while, so stick around. So, Andy, where are we going to go with this week's news? Okay, let's start off with a quick update on the latest impacts of the strike, particularly on Marvel. Thunderbolts has now paused its production. Filming was set to begin in three weeks' time in Atlanta, and according to Deadline, the crew was notified this week that the plan will be to resume production once the strike has ended. Uh, that puts both Thunderbolts and Blade as being big projects from Marvel that have been put on hold because of the strike. They were both on track to start filming this month ahead of releases in July 2024 and September 24. They're still keeping those release dates at the moment. But like we said last week, the longer the strike goes on for, and if the yeah. Actors Guild strike happens as well, we're going to start seeing a lot of release date shunts. I think if we get into that secondary strike, that, that will perk yeah. everything up and turn it up to uh, number 11. Uh, the studio was also forced to halt production on the TV series Wonder Man recently, which had already started shooting in Los, An Los Angeles. They reportedly, again, won't resume production until that strikes over, which only leaves four of the Marvel projects still active. On the film front, we've got Captain America New World Order, has a few more weeks of filming left to go, and is expected to complete it. Deadpool 3 began shooting this week in the UK. 
there's speculation rife regarding the potential limits of what can be shot with this because now Deadpool 3, because of the writer's strike, they've got to stick to the script that is delivered. And anyone who knows anything about how the Deadpool films have been made so far will know there's been a lot of spontaneously inserted ad-libs on set. They can't do that this time. Without a writer on set, there's no ad-libbing going to be allowed unless the screenplay that was delivered specifically says Ryan Reynolds to improvise around this idea. But if it's got specific lines, they have to stick to the lines. Otherwise, they're going against the guild rules and the strike. So it's it's interesting with that one. I'm not, I'm not sure mm. how it can play because uh, he, he's always been very spontaneous. You see, like, any of the behind-the-scenes things of any of his films, and there's always multiple multiple takes on different lines and, you know, different insults. See, that's an interesting one because if it's spontaneous, then no one is written the lines but it still needs to have if there's no writer on set they can't change anything that's in the script right they're they're insisting they can stick to it they're obviously that confident with the script let's see how it goes on the tv front agatha covenant chaos uh, began shooting in january and is pretty much finished now and daredevil born again is not far into its lengthy shoot but they're confident enough about the screenplays that they've got for each of the episodes that they can continue going without having any writers on set so some things are going, but it does mean that if they get to a point where the director goes, this isn't working, this scene doesn't work, they have to stop or yeah. move to a different scene and go back for reshoots later on and hope that they can manage to engineer it in such a way. It's a tricky time for the studio and hopefully all studios are starting to feel a bit of a sting from this. Well, all they have to do is resolve it, is to sit down with the yeah. WGA and resolve it. Yeah, let's give the writers what they deserve. Let's protect their jobs in a in an era when i mean i know that one of the things that they're talking about is how particularly for tv writers how shows have moved from being 24 episodes per season to like usually about 8 to 12 yeah that means less work for writers and at the same time they've been shrinking down the writers rooms from being large groups of like 12 to 14 people to five or six so it's more workload for less money that they've been getting and it's just not fair it's completely not fair. These people have a livelihood and they have lives and they can't be put under so much strain and pressure. So let's resolve this. Let's sort out the writer's room issues. Let's sort out the wages. Let's sort out what they get residuals from from streaming of content that could, as we've seen recently, just get pulled at any point. Yeah, moving on. In film news elsewhere, we also know that Blade Runner 2099, the TV series, has paused its production due to the WGA strike. That's that out of the way. Let's move on to the things that are happening or hopefully will be happening. Yes, I've seen that in casting news that the sci-fi thriller Companion has gained a star. And that is the boys, Jack Quaid. Yeah, he's a busy man these days. Uh, We are waiting the next season of the boys. He has a role on the animated Star Trek series Lower Decks, which I believe there's going to be a crossover with Strange New Worlds. Yes. And he's now signed on for a big film role in the companion produced by barbarians director zach Kreger and the directing duties fall to the writer drew hancock other than that we've got no plot to talk about watch this space let's just quickly talk about the cameo drops without give right without saying any cameo drops because there was a release this week of new information of a cameo that's going to be happening in the flash movie that i was so okay. annoyed that I'd heard about this because this would have been one of those moments that when you sat watching it, you suddenly go, oh, wow. And the sad thing is 
This wasn't even leaked. It was in an interview with Variety. Director Andy Machete just revealed, out of the blue, oh, yeah, when I was working on this bit with this person, oh, yeah, we really enjoyed doing it. And I read the interview and just thought, what are you doing? Why are you crippling your own film by telling us all the spoilers, all the things that will have people fist pumping and going, yay, that's great. I mean, we've seen it too often in recent history. We saw how The Rock released the news that, oh, Henry Cavill is going to be popping up as Superman in Black Adam. Well done, dude. You've just spoiled a major fist pump moment. We saw it uh, with Fast X. The, the week before it came out, they revealed who was going to be in the mid credit sting. And it would have been a, again. And with the Fast X one, the interesting thing is that the scene with the mid credit sting is designed purely for that character's reveal to be the final thing as they pull off a face mask that they've never worn in the history of this franchise. <laughs> you know, all, all of a sudden, this person who never sh never covers their face up in anything has their face covered up for a scene. That's because it was supposed to be a surprise reveal. But if you're telling the audience in advance that that's there, why should we bother? You, you're looking out for it, aren't you? Looking out for that that big reveal. I, I've not read anything about this, and and I made that decision not to, just to try and avoid any spoilers, especially when we get this close to a release. I want everything to to wash over me and feel fresh. I don't I don't want any spoilers. I remember when you and I saw the Spider-Man movie, which revealed J.K. Simmons in. Yep as J. Jonah Jameson, and you and I went, whoa, that was awesome. And the same with Reed Richards in uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah, and that, that's how you should do it. Yeah. It, there should be moments that you're, you know, Marvel are genuinely quite good with their marketing, that they keep a lot of things secret. We're not going to talk about that trailer that landed for the last Spider-Man film where spider-man was attacking three villains flying in opposite directions and one of them getting punched by an invisible demon or something uh, which made everyone go yeah there's clearly two more spider-man in that image it was it was still hinted at and we still didn't know until yeah until we were halfway through the movie yep but dc in particular seems to be terrible at keeping secrets and i went to the director in an interview just casually talking about cameos that he's put in it's like are you not realizing what these cameos are supposed to be these are supposed to be nice little nuggets Easter eggs for fans of certain properties to go, wow, I'm disappointed. Oh, the only enjoyment I can get from such cameos now is watching the reaction of people like you who manage to avoid the news. Mm. And that's why I'm not saying what these cameos are on here, because I know that there's people out there who I want you to be surprised by them. So all I'm going to say to you yes. is avoid the internet as much as possible, because it's getting ridiculous. Yeah, I know that a lot of articles which are linking to it at the moment are saying spoiler alert and then you have to click on it to read it. It's on you. But inevitably, there's going to be one of those junk pages like, you know, we got this covered, those kind of places, who will do spoiler alert, but then have a photo of the actual spoiler because they're just junk trades. Yeah. That's the unfortunate thing about living in this internet-enabled society is it's harder and harder to keep secrets. But if Marvel can do it, the rest of you should be able to do it. So this was disappointing news because you and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we were hoping to see a sequel to the recent Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. Well, as the movie's final box office gets tallied up, it's not looking well for a follow-up. So Paramount Pictures and E1's recent uh, fancied adaptation of Dungeons and Dragons received really good reviews from critics and an impressive audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. But despite all that, it was a decent opening weekend. It got an A minus cinema score. It just didn't find its fairy feet at the box office. 93 million domestic, 
dollars and then only 207 million dollars worldwide on a 150 million budget so it doesn't look good it's a real shame i know we're still looking at um, a dnd spin-off series from derek kolstad that's in development i've not heard anything to say otherwise so sadly it doesn't look like we're going to see these characters on the big screen again but you never know might go straight to paramount plus if it hits well on streaming and it generates traffic there they might have enough confidence in it to green light a follow-up but keep the budget a bit tighter this time yeah we had a good time with it yeah it deserves more attention than what it got and i, I don't know but maybe it's maybe it's just the name dungeons and dragons because as much as i'd love to think that everyone does tabletop gaming in this world and everyone's a D fan i've grown up a nerd i know that i'm still the minority and Maybe the name Dungeons and Dragons makes too many people go, oh, that silly game that people play with dice, and it doesn't yeah. quite grab the attention. Yeah, maybe, maybe if this was just released as Honor Among Thieves, it might have got more traffic, because yeah. there's nothing particularly wrong with the film. Uh, pun intended, it was a game changer for the boy who's now a massive D&D nerd. Revealed through Lionsgate's earning call this week, a fifth John Wick film is in early planning stages. Joe Drake of Motion Picture Group has said, we're now moving across that franchise, not just in the AAA video game space, but looking at what the regular cadence of spin-offs, television, and really growing that universe so that there's a steady cadence of a franchise and there's a clear appetite for it by the audience. What is official is that, as you know, Ballerino is the first spin-off that comes out next year. We're in development on three others, including John Wick 5, including television series The Continental. And so we're building out the world. And when that five movie comes, it will be organic. We'll be organically grown out of how we're starting to tell those stories. But you, you can rely on a regular cadence of John Wick. And what I got from that is this guy likes the word cadence. Yes, yes. It's a, <laughs> it's a term I don't use. We were talking about our syntax last week. And uh, it's, it's not in mind. But I might adopt it and use the word cadence and uh, try and drop cadence into as many sentences <laughs> as I possibly can. Nor make it a drinking game. It's how casual he mentioned john wick five as though like a you know no it wasn't big news that it was getting made it was just like oh well you know obviously john wick five's happening and when john wick five comes out it's like dude <laughs> yeah, you yes. haven't even told us you've got you were going to make it yet the last film suggested that that was the end and mixed responses on the john wick five news yes we know that it, that it left itself open to, to continue but i was happy to see it spin off with other aspects of the franchise yeah. for a while yet i don't want them to jump straight back to relying on john wick himself i want to see what ballerina does i want to see what the continental does i want them to continue the world building and then later down the line bring him back don't do it too quick because it kind of i wouldn't say that it cheapens john wick force ended i just think it kind of doesn't give it chance to breathe and talking of world building this is something that the fans have wanted for an awful long time to me makes no difference whatsoever but <laughs> it has been suggested that in the works is a transformers and gi joe crossover movie yes everybody's favorite toys are going to meet and and fight one would imagine and um, yeah boy even though <laughs> <laughs> this is purely for me this is they, they have made this they're making this film just for me <laughs> uh, apparently it's happening even though 2021 Snake Eyes was a flop and the prior G.I. Joe movies failed to impress fans and critics, especially critics. It seems as though it's on the cards. 
There's the animated prequel with Chris Hemsworth and Scarlett Johansson, Transformers 1, which is slated for a September 24 release. Uh, and the G.I. Joe characters are just waiting, they're just like they did in Small Soldiers. They're just in their boxes waiting to come <laughs> out and, and see what happens. It makes no impact on my life whatsoever, but it is it is a fan favourite. And of course, it's owned by the same company. It seems like a no-brainer. I'm there for it, purely for the Transformers aspect. And this comes from someone who hated what Michael Bay did with the Transformers. But I just know the potential that those characters have and those stories have because I've read the comics all those years ago and I still read them today. So, fingers crossed. Find out whether I still feel like this in two weeks' time when Transformers Rise of the Beast comes out and I'll watch that. If that doesn't impress me, then I'm going to be saying, cancel everything, stop this abomination. Ah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what the internet's for, kids. (laughs) Nicolas Cage has been cast in the leading role in the elevated psychological thriller feature The Surfer. Um, Cage plays a man who returns to a beachside hometown in Australia many years since building a life for himself in the United States. He get, he's humiliated in front of his teenage son by a local gang of surfers who claim strict ownership of the secluded beach of his childhood. And this wounded surfer decides to remain at the beach, declaring war against those in control of the bay. So it's, so it's nobody Basically, with surf. It, it's nobody with yeah. surfing. As the conflict ex- escalates, the stakes spin out of control and takes him to the edge of his sanity. This comes from filmmaker <laughs> Lorcan Finnegan, who gave us Viverdium and Nocebo. And it comes from a script by Thomas Martin. And I can already see exactly how Nick Cage is going to approach this one. I'll end up watching this when it inevitably goes straight onto Sky Movies or something. Or it'll be an Amazon Prime movie of the week. But I'm not expecting a lot from it because it just looks like the kind of junk that Nicolas Cage signs himself up for. And he tends to be the only thing worth watching within such junk. You know what scares me? Nicolas Cage doing an Aussie accent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can't wait. Let's hope there's some suggestions that, that he's not going down that room. Uh, Louisa Warren has reportedly been set to direct Cinderella's Curse, a horror spin on the classic fairy tale. And I can only blame things like Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey for this kind of aspect of yes. we're just going to tap into all nostalgic kids entertainment and turn it into horrors. Reports suggest it's potentially a slasher. Cinderella is a killer. It's going to have Kelly Ryan Sanson, Chrissy Wunner, and Danielle Scott starring in it, and Hallie Boxley, who co-wrote it. Yeah, because Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, recently released to underwhelming response. And if you heard my review on the show, when I reviewed uh, and it's it. it's getting a down. sequel. Yes. And that, uh, that upset me when I read that one. It started this wave, and we've been told that there's dark spins on Peter Pan and Bambi on the way. <sighs> I don't know. Cinderella's Curse. I, why are they calling it Cinderella's Curse anyway? I mean, they, I said this last week with the Fast and Furious, like Fast X. Why did they not call it Fure 10 Us? Because that's Furious <laughs> or Fast 10 Your Seatbelts. And here, they've got the name in front of them. Why not Cinderella? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're in the wrong business, Andy. Oh, th- these guys. <laughs> but yeah, more trashy horrors on the way because that's what doesn't cost much and they can churn out. On the flip side, beloved IT crowd and what we do in the shadows star Matt Berry is in negotiations to star alongside Aquaman and Fast X's Jason Momoa in the movie adaptation of the video game Minecraft. Now, I was not interested in a Minecraft movie coming from Warner Brothers Pictures until I've now seen both of those names attached to it. And I just think this is potential to be utter joy for people who know the game or don't know the game. <laughs> I think Matt Berry always brings something wonderful 
to everything he does. And Jason Momoa is probably the only only decent thing in Fast X, even though he's supposed to be a psychotic bad guy. I wanted him to win. Those two together, they both got charisma. They both got personality. They both got like a, a fun kind of vibe to them. I'd be happy to just watch them on screen doing nothing except for putting building blocks on top of each other while talking. This could be great. Uh, this is being helmed by Napoleon Dynamite's Jared Hess. Plot details and character details are under wrap. I'm not sure what plot you can get from a Minecraft film. All that we really know is the film is planning an April the 4th, 2025 release. Okay. Moving over to Terminator World. Arnold Schwarzenegger revealed over the past week that he's done with the Terminator franchise and has no intention to go back to it. Well, that's interesting because the Terminator franchise should be done, but I'm about to assume <laughs> it's not. No, James Cameron has not finished with it just yet. Like, he was a speaker at the Dell Technologies World this week, and he revealed to the crowd that he's already started work on writing a new Terminator movie three months ago. That's a terrible title. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Terminator three months ago. That'll be a great title, to be honest with you. <laughs> they just keep going back three months. <laughs> he added that he wants to see how the modern era of artificial intelligence shakes out before he goes any further, because he wants to draw upon what's happening in the world around us at the moment with all the AI aspect. Cameron is cr only credited as screenwriter on the first two films, which he directed. He had basically no involvement in the next three, but did a story credit for Dark Fate, which he also produced. And that film was a big box office bomb, losing 122.6 yeah, million. I was out, out by then. It was terrible. Uh, but yeah, he's he's hinted previously that a full reboot was in discussion, but nothing's been decided. But it looks like he's he's planning for something to happen. I don't think he'll direct because he's going to be too busy with Avatar 4, Avatar 5, Avatar 76. Yeah, it, the rest of his life is going to be spent in that watery grave. But he's he's bashing out story ideas and we'll probably pass it over i don't know i, I don't think we want i want terminator on the big screen but no i'd be happy to see it on the small screen i'd like them to do something different but they've tried every angle now they've brought linda hamilton back we've seen the world of the future it's perfection in its own right in those first yeah. two films I, i've got some love for terminator 3 there are elements of that mm. which i which i really enjoy but... that has a very brave ending yeah, so I love the ending because it was uh, that whole set we had a, a sort of 70s sci-fi feel yeah. to it. But after Terminator 3, I've, I've just not been engaged. And, and Genesis was just appalling. Terminator jellyfish, as I always call it. And, and that makes it a better film. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think a TV series is the way to go with the Terminator franchise. A TV series allows it to grow off different story threads and focus a bit more on like characters, etc. And you can you can do flashes backwards and forwards through the time war and have time to grow it and develop it rather than just being, oh, we're flashing forward just for a bit of action. We've only seen it once done on TV, which was the Sarah Connor Chronicles at two seasons, never found its audience, but absolutely brilliant Terminator. Yeah. Well worth checking out if you've never seen it. So I think the potential on TV is a lot better than trying to condense a story into a two and a half hour movie at most, which will inevitably just be the Terminators hunting one person down, another Terminator just trying to protect them. And we've seen all this before, cue car chasers. Yeah, you could see one set in the future where you see all the different rebellion groups and how they mm. are rebelling against the machines. That's interesting. But you're right, as a movie, we kind of went there and it failed to land. But a TV series, I'd be interested in that. But I'm, I don't want to see time travel stories anymore because it's been done to death 
Moving on. Netflix has announced January the 12th, 2024 release date for Lyft, which is a mid-air action comedy starring Kevin Hart and Guga Mbatha Raw. I'm out. I'm out already. Yeah, Kevin Hart. It's a Fate of the Furious director F. Gary Gray helming it. So it's still not boding, boding well for me. And it follows an international heist crew who are recruited to prevent a terrorist attack from taking place mid-flight. Hart plays a master thief who gets involved in the heist after being convinced by his ex-girlfriend. From the looks of the brief footage that was seen this week, the film looks to want to be a modern-day version of 1996's Executive Decision. So they're aiming high there. <laughs> <laughs> the cast, as it rounds out, is quite impressive. You've got people like Vincent D'Onofrio's in there, Sam Worthington, uh, Jean Reno, who's always, always worth watching, uh, Billy Magnuson, Kim Yoon-ji, Jacob Batalon, Byrne Gorman. There's some great names in there. But the only time that yeah. I enjoy Kevin Hart is when he's buddied up with Rock the Dwayne Johnson. Because mm, yeah. I think the two of them bounce off each other well enough to carry it. But anytime Kevin Hart is buddied up with someone else, it doesn't work for me. Mm. It's a straight-to-Netflix film. It's a straight-to-Netflix action comedy. We know how they turn out, and we know that I will end up watching it and reviewing it on the show. So keep a lookout for that <laughs> early next year. He'll bite that bullet for you. Quick roundup of final quick news. So Better Call Saul star Rhea Seahorn has joined the cast of the fourth installment of the Bad Boys franchise, and now I'm interested in watching Bad Boys. Filming's underway at the moment in Atlanta. Do we need another Bad Boys film? No. It seems we're going to get one. Do I want to see Rhea Seahorn on the big screen? Yes. yes. So yeah. I will be watching this. Norwegian actress Renate Reigns from The Worst Person in the World has signed on to star alongside Pedro Pascal, who's everywhere at the moment, as we know. Except he's not in The Mandalorian. <laughs> he's admitted it, hasn't he, this week? His voice no is, longer... but none of that was him. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's done with it. But they're going to star in barbarian filmmaker Zach Kreger's Weapons. Kreger wrote the script and is currently directing. The project is an interrelated multi-story horror epic that is tonally in the vein of Magnolia. And make of that what you want. Anyone who's seen Barbarian knows Loved it. that Craig plays with conventions, plays with expectations, knows the genre and trips you up all the way through. One of the best films of last year. Uh, Clint Eastwood is working on his final film and Keith Sutherland will join Nicholas Holt, Tony Collette, Zoe Deutsch in Jura number two for Warner Brothers Pictures. Jonathan Abrams penned the script and filming begins this summer. Holt will play a family man who, while serving as a juror in a high-profile murder trial, finds himself struggling with a serious moral dilemma he could use to sway the jury ver verdict and potentially convict or free the wrong person. Hopefully, for his final film, Eastwood's going to go out with a bang because his last few films have been a touch underwhelming. Yes, I totally agree. I want this to be a, something for us to remember how great Eastwood was. Uh, but he's got a good cast stacked in there, so fingers crossed. Uh, Mortal Kombat news. Adeline Rudolph, who played Agatha Knight on Sabrina and was also in the short-lived Resident Evil TV series, has been cast as Princess Katana, which I said Princess Katana was going to get announced when um, we were talking about Tati Gabrielle being cast as Jade last week. And interestingly, Tati Gabrielle and Adeline Rudolph were both part of the Witch's Sisterhood in Sabrina yes. on TV. So it gets to see them basically return to working alongside each other. I'm there for Mortal Kombat, as I've said many times. More blood and guts fun in a video game adaptation. And that is pretty much it. But lastly, we've got some sad news, some sad passings this week. Yeah. First of all, at the age of just 58, Irish actor Ray Stevenson. And he passed away literally just after we were recording last week. So it was too late to make the show last week. Um, Stevenson 
is known across TV and film. He rose to fame as Titus Pullo in HBO's Rome before making the jump to the big screen in 2004's King Arthur as Dagonet, who sacrifices himself to save the knights. He starred in Punisher Warzone, which was a more bloody and brutal and comic accurate version of Punisher than what we'd had. I personally preferred it when it was fun with Thomas Jane. I loved that kind of aspect, yes. but I got what they were doing with Stevenson. I think Stevenson was a great casting. It just was a bit too dark. After a few years, he returned to Marvel as Volstagg, one of the Warriors Three, and allied to Chris Hemsworth in Thor. And other film roles, I mean, he's been seen in The Three Musketeers, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Cold Skin, Accident Man, Book of Eli, Transporter, Divergence, and last year, he was a joy chewing the scenery as an evil British ruler in RRR, which if you've still not seen RRR, do yourself a favour. In recent years, Stevenson has also been seen on Dexter as a Ukrainian gangster. He was in, he voices a character on Star Wars Rebels. He was in the reimagining of Das Boot last year and Band of Gold, City Central. And he'll soon be seen in his final TV role as Bale on Skull in Star Wars Ashoka this August. He's also got one film ready to be released, which is 1242 Gateway to the West, which will be released sometime in the coming months. Sad loss and not an age to go at all. Very, very surprising news and um, very sad news and kind of came out of nowhere. Um, yes, he'll be missed. He was a, uh, I, he still hasn't, I don't think, played the most definitive role, but he was always reliable, always there um, on screen. A really sad passing. And the second bit of sad news, now not specifically to do with film, although she had popped up in film, particularly one iconic film that resonates with people like me and Lee. That's Tina Turner passed away this week at the age yes. of 83. Huge, huge news. I mean, it was one of those, where were you when you heard the news of the passing of Tina Turner? An absolute icon. Um, made big screen appearances, uh, of course, Beyond Thunderdome, the Mad Max yeah. third film. And um, she was the mayor in Last Action Hero, if I remember correctly. Yep. And she also popped up in Tommy as well. But obviously, she's known worldwide by the majority of people for the music that she's delivered over the years. In her early 20s, she found fame with I Can Tina Turner Review, hurling out classic hits such as River Deep, Mountain High, Nutbush, City Limits. The story of her relationship with Ike has been covered on film in documentaries and biopics throughout the years. The marriage ended um, after the pair divorced in 1978. But in the 80s, she just became she just became an absolute juggernaut of music. What's love got to do with it? The best. We don't need another hero. What you see is what you get. I don't want to fight. And the theme song for Bond, Goldeneye. I don't think there's anyone alive today who wouldn't recognise a Tina Turner track. Absolutely. I mean, it is. I mean, she was classed as the queen of rock and roll. She was absolutely an iconic personality, huge personality. Uh, had a an interesting and if not tragic life. One of those rare occasions where somebody gets a, a, a second chance and makes yeah. the most of it. it. As you said, her relationship with uh, Ike Turner is 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 known, especially for the uh, for the movie. What's love got to do with it? Mm -hmm. But uh, at one point, she was so poor that she was living out of a car. It was one of the great rock and roll comebacks of all time, and uh, um, she'll be sadly missed. But leaves a fantastic legacy of work behind she won 12 grammys and she was the first not only the first black artist to be on the front cover of rolling stone but the first woman to be on the front cover of rolling stone 
had a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and was twice inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Absolute legend, a real sad loss. I know that some cinemas across the UK are showing the Tina documentary, which has landed on Sky as well this week in tribute to her. Fully recommend watching them and see the life of this wonderful performer who's had quite a marvellous innings, but it still feels so sad to lose someone. Yeah, absolutely. Died peacefully in her home in Switzerland after a battle with a very long illness. And that, folks, sadly, that's the news. You're listening to The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And if you've not already subscribed to the show, um, the big question is why not? Uh, we'll send around Liam Neeson and he'll sort you out. He knows where you live and he'll come around and he'll make you subscribe to the show. <laughs> so we're wondering, is it something that we've done? Or is it something that we've said? And all we can do is apologize if we have. And all you have to do to make up for that is just listen to our show and subscribe and leave a like. It's that easy, Andy. It's that easy. Yo, you have to, it's just clicking a button. Well, it's not even a button. Is it a button? That, do you still call it a button these days when key. it's just a flat key, screen? Isn't it? Just key. No, well, a key's the actual physical thing. It's just touch your screen. You know what to do. Hit that point on the screen that says subscribe or has a tick or something, whatever service you're listening on. You won't miss an episode that way because you'll get alerts every week to let you know when the content drops. You're clearly listening for a reason. You've got this far in the show. You're clearly enjoying what we're doing. So why not subscribe? Do it. Do it now. It doesn't sound right when you just go, do it. Do it now. So I'm going to go, do it. Do it now. That's better. <laughs> now, now I can feel the sense of urgency of why you have to do it. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us as well. Hop over to the social media platform. Search for Film File UK. We're probably on there. Drop us a message. Send, send us suggestions on films. Answer our question of the week. Whatever you want to do, you can do it through that way, or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. We love to hear from you. We love to chat films. We just love to do this. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. So we're deep diving two movies. Firstly, the 1966 British comedy drama directed by Lewis Gilbert and starring Michael Caine, which is an adaptation of Bill Norton's own book and a play of the same name, and that's Alfie. And then we'll be talking about the 2004 romantic comedy drama inspired by the 1966 British film of the same name, and that's Alfie starring Jude Law. So, what's it all about? But what have I got out of it? I got a bob or two, some decent clothes, a car. I got my health back, and I ain't attached. What have I got? Really? Some money in my pocket. Some nice threads, fancy car at my disposal. And I'm single. Yeah. Unattached. Free as a bird. But I ain't got me peace of mind. And if you ain't got that, you ain't got nothing. But I don't have peace of mind. And if you don't have that, you've got nothing. So what's the answer? That's what I keep asking myself. What's it all about? Know what I mean? So what's the answer? That's what I keep asking myself. What's it all about? You know what I mean? So this was Michael Caine at his uttermost core. His break into movies and that made him the star that we know today. Alfie tells the story of a young womanizing man who leads a self-centered life purely for his own enjoyment until he's forced to question 
his uncaring and at times misogynistic behavior. He cheats on numerous women and despite his confidence towards women, he treats them with utter disrespect and refers to them as it. Yes, I said this film came out in 1966. Yeah. The interesting thing about Alfie is he breaks the fourth wall. That means he speaks directly to the camera, narrating and often justifying his own actions. This was a huge box office success in 1966. And looking back on it, it's one of those films that makes you feel, well, not great inside. Yeah, I revisited both of these this week. And I've not seen the Michael Caine one since before 2004, when Jude Law's one came along. Looking back at the 1966 one, we're not supposed to absolutely love everything that Alfie does. Yeah, we empathise with him rather than engage with him. Yeah, but watching it now through a modern lens, it's harder to empathise with him because we've grown so much as, as a society and a culture that, you know, we know straight away that if someone's referring to women as objects and just, oh, look at it over there. Oh, it'll do okay. Oh, it's not bad looking in the right light. There's a certain disrespect that makes it hard to like the character. Now, when it was made, the cheeky charm of Alfie works to make you kind of like, you're enjoying him. You're drawn in with him. When he starts to realise that how he's living his life and how it affects other people and how it how it can damage how he could actually enjoy his life going forwards, you're supposed to be already so on board with Alfie as a character that you go, oh no, that's heartbreaking. But it's harder to like the character of Alfie these days. There's still some, I mean, and it's it's kudos to Michael Caine because he just brings his roguish charm to stuff. There's still oh, enough in there to just about latch onto him. And the fourth wall breaking is a way to try to get us to, to get us on his side by, you know, we're we're secretly in on his comp like in with him on this. And we're we're in, like within his confidence circle. And he wants to share his intimate thought intimate thoughts and everything warts and all with us, but us alone. And that kind of works to make you go, okay, I'm engaged with it. But it is the fact that we have evolved so much over the decades as a society that made this rewatch initially very, very hard to do. It was very hard in that first act to care for anything Alfie does because it was very easy to hate him these days. Yeah. It pulls itself back around on the second half, though. Once he starts to reflect on the things that he's doing that are upsetting other people, it's impossible to not get drawn in, particularly. And the key scene in this film that everyone always refers to is the abortion scene. Yeah, you needed that scene because it it made Alfie human for the first time. And you've got to give all kudos to, to Michael Caine mm -hmm. in this film. I mean, it's utterly charming. It, it was the film that sort of cemented how we think about Caine. Uh, I mean, he was on, on the rise as a, as a big international star. But it's also a, a fantastic time capsule of, of, of um, the swinging 60s. And, mm -hmm. and it shows this film... You, you you can only judge it retrospectively and it is it is a difficult watch now but i saw it many many years ago when we'd not quite reevaluated the film as, as we are doing now and uh even then i found it problematic but i still love michael kane in it i thought he was an absolute joy every time he's on screen he, he's utterly charming mm. even though he's a misogynist and um, with regards to the abortion scene it's interesting if you've never seen alfie it's interesting to note that it was a back backstreet abortionist. You don't see anything, but you see the impact of it. And that scene is so powerful because Michael Caine's reaction to what he sees in the kitchen that we don't see, but he sees it. You can imagine what he's seen. 
uh, yeah. purely because it's it's a masterclass in acting. And there's that moment in that scene where it, Alfie almost takes responsibility for his own actions, but his way of doing it is to slip the money back into her purse so that she didn't have to pay for it. And it's like, oh, you're still not quite growing as a person, Alfie. You're still yeah. still keeping it very much like object, object, object. But that's the point of the film that he almost breaks and almost becomes, you know, an empathetic human. But it's also, by the end of it, you realise that he's quite a lonely, tragic figure. Yeah, which that shock hits him with Shelley Winters as Ruby, plays him in the same way that he plays women. And once he's yes. given that representation of like, well, women can start to take control. Women can do exactly what you do. You're just not young enough aspect. And that makes him realise that, you know, he, he could potentially never really find genuine happiness because yeah. that was the one person that he thought that he could be genuinely happy with because she was so like him. She was wild. She was carefree, but it backfired. And that final moment of him on the bridge contemplating where he is in life, it's a beautifully poignant aspect finished him with him walking off with the stray dog. And it just makes makes you go, well, you know what? There's still some there's still some hope for Alfie. There's hope that Alfie will will learn his lesson, will become a better person. But deep in there in your mind, we all know an Alfie. We've all got at least one friend who's an Alfie. Sadly, these people still do exist. We've all got that one person who's just carefree and just sleeps with anyone and just uses and uses people just for pleasure. And we know that they'll never change. It's a fantastic cast, as you said. You mentioned Shelley Winters as Ruby, Jane Asher, mm. uh, Julia Foster, Eleanor Braun, Denham Elliott as the abortionist, Alfie Bass. A, a great, a, a great cast, and and really again a time capsule cast. And of course, the famous song written by Burt Backrack and Hal David in the American version, sung by Sher. It became a hit for British singer Cilla Black. Uh, and Melissa Martin sang Alfie on its British release. Um, it's one of those songs which really capture, again, the essence of, of the film, the essence of the character, and a, a beautiful, uh, a, a beautiful, typical, in a great way, Backrack and David production. So let's jump ahead to 2004, and Alfie is remade uh, with Jude Law, less said about the 1975 sequel starring Alan Price. Alfie now is a Cockney limo driver in Manhattan, uh, sexually addicted. He regularly goes to bed for women on one night stand. In addition, he maintains uh, a casual relationship with single mother Julie, his semi kind of regular girlfriend, and an unhappily married Dory. Uh, once Dory wants more than just a casual fling, Alfie is out of the picture. It follows pretty much the same elements of story that the original version did. Yeah. Jude Law, again, effortlessly charming. I mean, it's interesting with Jude Law being cast because Michael Caine always said in his uh, biographies through the 90s onwards that he sees Jude Law as a young version of him. He sees him as like he's, he's the same kind of actor. So when he got cast in Alfie, it was like, well, of course he is because it's, he's a perfect fit and he's got that same kind of cockney cheeky charm. Interesting with the 2004, because you said that like he's a sex addict and that was a great way to update the Alfie story for the modern yeah. era because around the early 2000s, we were getting so many news reports of celebrities who have checked into sex rehab. You know, David Duchovny, for example, was famously one of the big major stars the, yeah, Michael Douglas as well. So this, rather than being a womanizer, it's more that he's just, it's just casual one-off 
one night stands constantly and also the film has progressed itself along with the times so the women are just as controlling of the relationships as the men are in these ones you've you've women are out for fun as well it's not just alfie alfie is just taking advantage of it to fill his addiction and that takes it away from being this toxic masculinity aspect to being something more for the times that we lived in which was a smart way even though it plays pretty much the same beats it goes down the same roads it has the same almost same reactions to what he does it, it, we have the breaking the fourth wall as well we, yeah. with uh, Alfie playing narrator uh, and tour guide through his um, through his life often you know giving uh, judgment which we've seen to be not necessarily the way the scene played out scenes that you will know from the original that you know how it ends there's some smart use of like flipping it slightly and again is to show how much more empowered women have become over the decades and this is, a, I think this is a film that was seriously overlooked when it came out at the box office. Because I think people were so beholden to the 1966 original that they didn't see the point of a remake. But I saw this when it came out and I saw straight away what the point of this was. And it was that we live in a different era now. And these kind of stories are still impacting us. And these kind of people still exist here. But the world has changed. So it pl like everything plays differently. There's still an element of misogyny within it, but there's a yeah. good element of like, when the 1966 one came out, it was just really the start of like that push of women's movement and, you know, women getting full power over their own bodies and identities. And, you know, that is slightly reflected in the 66 one. This is the after effect of that. This is now that women can fight and try to be equals a lot more. We get to see the same story told in a new environment. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. Susan Sarandon um, plays the ruby-esque character in this one and plays it exactly the same way to play alfie at his own game and again it's that moment that makes him reflect and go can i ever be happy will i ever break this addiction and it's an addiction in this one yeah it's a great cast again uh, marissa tomei oh she's marvelous. omar epps um sienna miller is stand out in this as is near long i i liked it i'm i don't love it i thought it felt as though it was a fresh take on uh, an old idea I agree with what you said. I think you brought it up today in just the right way. And again, by the end of it, Alfie is a tragic character. Can't ever get what he wants as he sort of contemplates where his life goes after this. While it was a, a box office bomb, it didn't find an audience. Uh, maybe that was because people have such a fondness for the original, and, or perhaps it is one of those stories that is out of time and, and should go back to being this 60s telling and, and left there. But I don't dislike it. I think Jude Law is is very charming. And as you said, he is the natural progressor to Michael Caine. And of course, he did play um, another Michael Caine role in in the um, re-adaptation of Sleuth. Yeah. So yes, I think he was the, the perfect choice for Alfie. I think that the Alfie story is more just, a, you referenced it on the 1966 one. It's a, it's a look at the times in which it was set. And I think it's a story that we could tap back to every couple of decades to see how we progress as a society by telling that same structured framework, but with the new interpretations. You know, if we made an, an Alfie now, would he be a, a toxic incel? Or would he, be sexually, yeah, yeah. would he be sexually experimental in a society that offers so many variations these days? Would he be on Tinder? Would he be on Grindr? Every age has an Alfie. 
And this is a story that is a timeless insight for the ages which they're made. And I think there's room for further adaptations of those scenarios in the new environments. So if you've not seen Alfie, either version, Andy, where can we find them? They are both on Paramount+. Plus. You can probably find them popping up. Well, you can find the 1966 version popping up quite frequently on BBC iPlayer because it is a regular BBC rotation. Or you can just go and buy them. Um, if you've never seen the 2004 one because you were so beholden to the original, I do recommend, yeah, do give recommend it giving it a go because you might find that it's actually actually quite palatable. And a lot of that is down to, again, the lead actor. Jude Law is so good. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for the reviews. Andy has done all the work this week. Well, he does every week, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Three different offerings for you. Kicking off with this week's biggie, as it made a splash, and that is Little Mermaid. Ariel, you went to the above world. A man was drowning. I had to save him. She was real. She saved my life. She sat calling to me. It's an adventure. Director Rob Marshall is no stranger to musicals, having spent the past two decades delivering films such as Chicago, Nine, Into the Woods and Mary Poppins Returns, so his appointment as director for this latest live-action version of a Disney favourite pretty much placed it in safe and confident hands. However, over the course of the production, it was impossible to not see the negativity levied at it from some quarters of the online community, with gripes over casting decisions, creative choices being made with the songs, including the inclusion of new ones, and the somewhat dubious CGI that was glimpsed in the trailers. Thankfully, the end product delivers well, thrusting the film into the upper tier of live-action adaptations, albeit with a few flaws to prevent it from being a complete hit. The story remains the same. The mermaid Ariel, played here by Halle Bailey, is the youngest of King Triton's daughters and has long desired to find out more about the surface world. When she rescues the dashing Prince Eric, Jonah Howard King, from a shipwreck, she falls for him deeply and makes a pact with the banished sister of Triton, Ursula, played by Melissa McCarthy, to experience life on land. However, the Sea Witch's deal has some caveats, and Ursula is determined to ensure that they are not met so she can take Ariel as her servant and destroy Triton. In the central role of Ariel, Bailey absolutely shines. Her voice is stunning when delivering renditions of the fan favourite songs that have carried over, but in her entire acting presence, she more than sells it all. When she gets her legs and lives on land, completely voiceless, all her reactions have to be done via facial expressions and body language, and she genuinely captures the sense of wonder and joy, and indeed sorrow, that the part requires. It's impossible to not be charmed by her throughout, and she more than lifts the film. She owns it. That is, except whenever Melissa McCarthy appears as Ursula. Now, I'm not much of a fan of McCarthy. She can be good, but usually I find her less than average in her roles. However, here, she's an absolute diva, chewing up the CGI scenery around her and absolutely stealing the limelight in a joyously wicked manner, doing the character some true justice as the sea witch you love to hate. With that pair of characters taking up so much of the limelight, it'll be very easy to overlook some of the extended cast but thankfully, with the exception of Howard King as Eric, who feels a little flat and unengaging, and Javier Bardem as Triton, who doesn't quite feel like he was on the same film set as everyone else, the support cast, mostly, are fantastic. 
David Diggs voices Sebastian beautifully, Jacob Tremblay is charming as Flounder, and Aquafina once more captures my attention, voicing Scuttle. The CGI choices are a tad odd at times, and some elements don't fit well. And again, Bardem seems to be the one area this struggle is visible in, as he never seems to make any impact. The undersea world looks strangely cartoonish at times, but given I've never been to an undersea mermaid kingdom, I'm quite willing to overlook it as I don't know what it should look like. But overall, the whole thing works. It captures the magic of the Disney original tale, plays a little differently at times, throws in some new songs from Lin-Manuel Miranda, which has resulted in me having scuttlebutt stuck in my head ever since, and makes full use of the over two hours runtime to deliver a solid slice of cinematic fun for young and old. With the poor performance of some of the live action offerings, it's uplifting to find another one that reminds us of how they can do them justice. With the strong box office opening it's had, showing that there's a desire for a fun family adventure, hers hoping that this is a film that <laughs> has legs. I've never seen the animated version and I've only seen a few of the Disney live action remakes. Um, some of them I thought were fantastic, like Jungle Book. Some of them were really poor, like Mulan. But everything I have seen about this, it looks utterly charming. Mm. It's doing well with audience response. It's uh, it's getting really good word of mouth feedback. I just had fun with it. Not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but a solid three and a half out of five from me. Families will love it. Your young children will love it. And, you know, I'm a 50-year-old male. Loved it. Last weekend at the box office, you may have heard a huge explosion. Yes, that was the box office bombing of Hypnotic, the latest film from Robert Rodriguez, filmmaker that we really like. But word is, this ain't great. Did it cast its spell on you, Andy? Did you look into its eyes and thought, this is a great movie, or not? Are you familiar with the concept of hypnotics? Hypnotics. Hypnotics have the ability to influence the brain. It's very hot today. To make you see a version of the world that doesn't exist. I have to know everything. What you're seeing isn't real! Here's the thing with Robert Rodriguez. Because of the great films that he's given us through the years, such as El Mariachi, Desperado, The Faculty, Dust Till Dawn, Sin City and Alita Battle Angel, I'll always give him a free pass for those he makes that don't land. But seriously, he's starting to run out of free passes now. Hypnotic stars Ben Affleck as an Austin police detective named Danny, whose seven-year-old daughter was kidnapped, leading to his marriage breaking down. However, when he and his partner Nix receive a tip-off, that a safe deposit box is going to be stolen. The pair witness a man, played by William Fitchner, seemingly hypnotise random people into doing acts against their nature. Danny manages to get to the safe deposit box before the mysterious man can steal it, and inside finds a link to his daughter's abduction, setting off a chain of events that make him question the world around him and what he knows, as he finds out about a mysterious group of people with hypnotic powers. What follows is a film that weaves and twists around so much that it becomes a befuddled mess that just thinks that it's smarter than it actually is. And it overplays itself at every opportunity, leading to a final act that is just plain ridiculous. Affleck phones in a performance here. He delivers none of the spark that we've seen recently in air, clearly just doing this film to pay some bills. Lacking emotion, at first I thought maybe that was due to the trauma of losing his family, but it became clear early on that that wasn't the case. He just clearly doesn't care enough about the part to give anything. In fact, the only member of the cast who seems to give something to the film is Fitchner as the mysterious Del Rain, who adds a chilling menace and makes for a very interesting villain. 
Rodriguez still makes the film look good, and the action is well staged, but the fault here is in the overwritten plot, which relies on extremely clumsy exposition dumps throughout to push it along to the next scene. Rodriguez has said that he worked with his sons on the film, Rebel helped him with the story, and that kind of fits, given that some of the director's biggest misfires through the last couple of decades came from ideas that his sons had for films. Hypnotic is an apt name, as despite being thankfully short, I still found myself watching the time and almost falling asleep throughout. You know, I can't believe this actually has had a cinema release, to be perfectly honest, with the reviews that I've heard and what you've just said. Um, Robert Rodriguez is a, is a good filmmaker. Ben Affleck's a great actor, great filmmaker. But this is one of those combinations where even in, and I've read the script, even in that, it's really, really poor. It's got a, a, an interesting gimmick, but that's about it. I think, I mean, particularly for the UK, it's got released alongside Little Mermaid. I think this was just a bit of counter-programming of like, well, whilst all the youngsters and families will be coming to Little Mermaid, let's give something for older audiences. No, it won't be at cinemas much longer. So if you do want to see it, go and see it now. Uh, if you do want to see it, wait until it's on streaming, because seriously, it's not worth sitting in a cinema for. And the final film, now, this one came out last year, and I didn't get around to watching it. And I was, I have to admit, I did mock it at times, because it didn't look appealing to me. But I always realised the error of my ways, you shouldn't mock something until you've actually seen it. So when Lyle Lyle Crocodile landed on Sky Movies this week, I gave it a shot. I made a friend. He can't talk, but he can sing. Just because I'm back at head school, don't make it in the room. He's not dangerous. We have to show people that they don't have to be scared of him. That was awesome. We got a crocodile on a motorcycle. Lyle Lyle Crocodile. Adapted from the children's book of the same name, Lyle Lyle Crocodile is brought to the screen by Will Speck and Josh Gordon and completely passed me by last year on cinema release, leaving me bemused to the positive reviews it garnered from critics and friends who saw it. Nothing in the trailers enticed me, but with it landing on one of the streaming channels this week, I gave it a shot to see what I missed. Set in New York City, a magician named Hector, played by Javier Bardem, is looking for something to add to his failing act. When he discovers a singing crocodile in a pet store, he adopts the creature, naming him Lyle. Training the crocodile to deliver a great show and save his career, he places his home up as collateral to secure a show. But when Lyle suffers from stage fright, the magician finds himself kicked out of his home. 18 months later, a new family move into the home and discover the crocodile. Initially scared by it, they soon become charmed by the reptile, each member of the family bonding with Lyle over their favourite hobbies. However, not everyone is charmed with Lyle as their downstairs neighbour seeks to end the activities. I'm clearly not the target audience for this film, and I imagine many youngsters will be charmed by it all. I can certainly see the appeal in some of the fun hijinks that go on, and the musical numbers are reasonably well done, but I just couldn't get past the CGI on offer, which makes Lyle look completely out of place throughout, and he ended up so broken out of the film that I then started getting frustrated by the internal logic of a kid's film. By the time it got to the point in the film where the son of the family, Josh, says that there's no such thing as magic. I found myself yelling at the screen, dude, you own a singing crocodile who dances and cooks. Of course there's magic. I must say, however, that Bardem is clearly having a field day here as Hector. And every time he's on screen, it lifted things a bit, gave me something to enjoy. But that was about it. The rest of the film just felt to me like a poor man's Paddington. And whilst I've got the childhood love of that marmalade loving bear to help me be won over, 
I've never heard of Lyle before this film, so I couldn't even latch onto that. This is definitely one for the younger crowd and totally underwhelming for me. So that's this week's reviews. What's landing at our centres for entertainment over the next week? Cinemas this week. We'll start off small with reality. We'll move on to Mad About the Boy, the Noel Coward story. We'll then go on to The Boogeyman, bit of Stephen King horror, getting good buzz so far. Hopeful for this yeah, one. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. And then uh, the big film of the week, obviously, is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse that lands in cinemas. Can not wait. Yeah, can't wait. It looks awesome. Now TV and Sky. I missed it on its limited cinema release. It got very mixed reviews. Bros lands. Did see it at cinema release. If you've not seen it, Smile lands on Now TV and Sky this week. And third film this week is The Infernal Machine. Over on Netflix, A Beautiful Life which is a romantic musical drama uh, starring popular Danish singer Christopher as a fisherman with an extraordinary voice who's discovered by a high-profile music manager. So basically, the the Danish have remade Fisherman's Friends. Danish version of... (laughs) That's the same, but with an accent. Over on Amazon. Now, this one I missed at the cinemas, but I heard such good reviews from a few people who like this kind of arty approach to things. Bones and all lands on Amazon this week. And so that's on my list to hopefully get watched and talk mm, about. I've heard good things about that. And that's about it. But it, it is all about the boogeyman and across the Spider-Verse that both me and Lee are hoping to get to see together this week to talk about next week. And that, folks, that's us done for this week. As we move into our neat things, this has been a, a measured cadence. There, <laughs> we've conveyed it perfectly. Said we'd get it in somewhere. So let's talk about, before we go, our neat things yeah stuff that we've enjoyed liked loved you name it we're going to tell you all about it andy what's your neat thing for this week okay we're halfway through the season now on apple tv plus so i think it's about time i brought silo to the neat things oh i'm glad you're talking about it because i've not had a chance to see it yet silo for those who don't know is adapted from a book series by author hugh howie And it's a dystopian sci-fi TV series which is set in a ruined and toxic future where there's a community of thousands of people in a giant underground silo that plunges hundreds of stories deep. People live in a society that is filled with regulations, that has destroyed records of its history, so no one knows what is outside the silo. And people believe that this community that they're in is protecting them from the poison gas that fills the atmosphere. If anyone says that they'd like to go outside, they are immediately sentenced to go outside. It's illegal to talk about the outside and what happens out there. It's illegal to have any relics of the past. And on the first episode, we get Rashida Jones as the main focus character. And we get to explore the whole idea of someone being punished by being sent outside. And when they go outside, they usually die within about 90 seconds because of the toxic atmosphere. They're all wrapped up in a in a suit but they're sent out and it still gets to them. But they always end up cleaning the camera first so that the exterior view of the desolated wasteland can be seen. However, there's hints in the first episode that maybe what you're seeing on that camera isn't reality. And as you'd expect from this kind of dystopian sci-fi, the big question is, are they being controlled in there for any particular reason? It's five episodes in. It's weaving quite nicely. Rebecca Ferguson comes into it late on in the first episode and becomes the main character going forwards. And she is magnificent as the new sheriff of this silo. I think she's great in everything that she does. The story, I'm not going to give any spoilers away because it's beautiful to see how each episode 
builds and turns and plays with the ideas of all the dystopian sci-fis that we've seen so many times. I mean, there's echoes of Logan's running here. There's all kinds of like echoes and similarities of other dystopian sci-fi that you could draw upon. But it's having fun weaving the story around. And whilst the big secret is what is outside, that's become less important because I'm now more interested in the politics that are corrupting the system inside and how people are living in that society. There's the whole third ep- third episode is pretty much just focused on them fixing the power generator for the silo. And it's one of the most tense 45 minutes of TV that I've ever watched. It was edge of the seat, nail biting, absolutely brilliantly put together. Fascinating story. I know there's books out there. I don't want to read the books because I don't want any of this story spoiled for me. I'm enjoying watching it slowly unravel. Rebecca Ferguson, Rashida Jones, Tim Robbins, Harriet Walter, Ian Glenn, Common, Will Patton. I mean, there's names in this alone should be drawing everyone to watch it. This is a prime example of why we always recommend that Apple TV is worth getting. Their TV services always tap into something marvellous, and I can't get enough of this. I've seen what the titles of the last few episodes are. The very last episode of this season is going to be titled Outside. I can't wait. Apple have got this high quality with everything that they're doing. I mean, they've got all the money, so um, they they aren't in the TV business, so to speak. They're in the entertainment business, and it doesn't matter if a show succeeds or not. They can throw as much money at it as they want. Um, and we've had some some great stuff. It's always a joy when something lands on Apple. It's always worth checking out. I will, based on that recommendation, have been looking forward to getting around to it on your recommendation. I am in. When you mentioned Logan's Run, that sold yeah. it for me. Yeah, my neat thing. I've been talking about it for weeks. It's finally landed on Sky Max, and now, and that is Poker Face from Ryan Johnson. So I'd heard good things about this coming over from the US. It seems to be on everybody's favorite list. Everyone who was anybody I trusted was saying you will enjoy this. So the setup is simple. Uh, Natasha Leon, her a Russian doll, plays a casino worker, and she. She has an incredible and unusual gift, which makes her an ex-season gambler. She can instantly tell if anyone is lying. So in episode one, after a friend is found dead and something feels not quite right, she puts that ability to use, tries to figure out what happened, and eventually ends up on the road solving suspicious cases each week along the way. What I loved about this is, A, Natasha Lyon is always uh, a, a great screen presence, loved her in Russian Doll, but it's created by Ryan Johnson. Yes, he of Knives Out and Glass Onion, and now is the mastermind of our kind of modern day murder mysteries. So if Knives Out was a throwback to say, uh, Agatha Christie and Poirot, this is a throwback to Columbo, even down to the opening titles even down to the murder of the week, in which we know at the beginning exactly who did it, why they did it, and where they did it. And then it's up to Natasha Leon as Charlie Case to sort it out. And it is an absolute joy. I'm three episodes in already, and I only watched the first episode on Friday. Love the fact that it feels like a 70s show. Right from the opening titles, the way that they they come onto screen, again, is very reminiscent of what used to be the murder mystery of the week, uh, TV movies, which you'd get sort of uh, the Snoop Sisters, or you'd get one week, you'd have Columbo, and then you'd have another one, and, and the titles are reminiscent of that. It also, 
and, and it lands for me entirely, is that after the first episode, it becomes the character on the run, which was a stable of things like The Incredible Hulk or The Fugitive, where character turns up in a new location. Uh, there's a new set of guest stars and there's a new mystery and murder each week. Absolutely loving it. Leon's Charlie is a, a fantastic character, the perfect successor to Peter Falk. He almost get the impression at the end of the scene she's going to come back in and go and another thing ryan johnson who's the mastermind behind this show and of course the mastermind behind knives out and glass onion uh is now the modern mystery writer if knives out was poirot then this is certainly colombo every episode gets a, a brand new guest star we've already seen adian brody yet to see we've got uh chloe savigny coming in ron perlman uh, tim blake nelson this is, it's, it's nothing groundbreaking, but it is this throwback to the kind of TV that we had growing up, except done with a modern slant. Highly, highly recommended. I am three episodes in and I only started two days ago. This is Columbo for the 21st century and Natasha Lyons as Charlie Case is our brand new Detective of the Week. An awesome show. And have you had a chance to catch Poker Face yet? Not yet, um, but... I've, I've got it high on my list. You know that I do love a good murder mystery and I've loved what Ryan Johnson's been doing with murder mysteries. So this has been on my list for a while. I'll find time this week, hopefully. And exactly like Columbo, you know the mystery at the beginning of the show. So everything's laid out for you. You've had the motive, you've had the killer. It's then up to Charlie Case to find out using this ability that she can spot if somebody's lying or not to crack the case. Uh, an absolutely delight. It's uh, comedic in the right places without ever being falling into spoof, but it is it is just a bit of retro joy. Um, and that's my pick of the week, Poker Face. And that, folks, that's us for this week. We are done. Uh, we'll be back again next week with more reviews, more news, more chat, a bit more of everything, really. Yeah, just a little bit more. That's all we're going to bring, a little bit more. This week, Obviously, we've already spoken about what films we're both looking forward to, but it's also a final episode of Ted Lasso oh, is approaching. Bless. It's been a joy this season. It's been a joy. And I've also got the final episode of this season's run of Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. So it's all finals for me this week. No, um, there'll, be, there'll be other shows along. Don't worry. Well, Just when you think it's over, it's always something. To there's loads to. of shows. There's loads of shows. Like, well, I've got Poker Face to get around to watching. So yeah. Trust me, you'll uh, love it. I've got I've got a nice week ahead of me. It's also the half term, so I haven't got much time ahead of me to do anything this week, but I will find time. I will find that time. And talking of time, I've got to go and finish packing a suitcase. But Andy, there are two things I've learned in life. Find someone to love and live every day as if it were your last. And the thing is, I'll still... I'll still let Robert Rodriguez off and be excited about his next thing simply because of that handful of films that he's delivered that have been amazing. Yeah. El Mariachi, Desperado, Dust Till Dawn, um, Alita Battle Angel. Sin City. You know, I, I, yeah, I will just let him off for all the trash that he churns out as a result. Because yeah, he's just not I think much in the way just, of... He's earned our respect just from what he does well. I even like the faculty. Hmm. The studio film, but I like the faculty. Adds it onto the deep dive list. <laughs> so let's talk about this week's show. No, we won't. Well, let's let's I, talk I, about. You did that last week. <laughs> I did, didn't I? And you favourably cut round it. <laughs> 
swallow, don't spit. <laughs> Sounds like a, a bad 70s uh, detective series. Swallow and spit. <laughs> yeah. They weren't likely. Spit. It'll be a German light sidekick called Spitz. Yeah. <laughs> Detective Swallow, this is my accomplice, Spitz. <laughs> yeah, I am here to help solve the crimes. <laughs> Cue wacky intro music. <laughs> Sorry, I just got to go stick around because you said stick around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you've not seen Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, seriously, uh, as soon as you can, when it comes on streaming, get it watched and enjoy it and realize what you've missed out on and realize what we've all missed out on because people like you didn't go to the box office to see it. <laughs> There's me guilt tripping all our audience at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. You're living in a world where there's a six-foot giant singing crocodile <laughs> and you don't believe in magic. <laughs> and that was it. It was like, you've broken your own internal logic here. I'm not having it. Cadence. Yeah, cadence. I don't even know where to, where to apply it. Let me just see what they're doing. The cadence of the show has been a, quite a good bit of cadence today. <laughs> But we're going to keep with the cadence <laughs> as we move into, the, move into the neat yeah. things. 